Chapter Nine of Saint Francis of Assisi by G. K. Chesterton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, Miracles and Death. The tremendous story of the stigmata of Saint Francis, which was the end of the last chapter, was in some sense the end of his life. In a logical sense it would have been the end even if it had happened at the beginning. But truer traditions refer it to a later date and suggest that his remaining days on the earth had something about them of the lingering of a shadow. Whether St. Bonaventura was right in his hint that St. Francis saw in that seraphic vision something almost like a vast mirror of his own soul that could at least suffer like an angel though not like a god, or whether it expressed under an imagery more primitive and colossal than common Christian art the primary paradox of the death of God, it is evident from its traditional consequences that it was meant for a crown and for a seal. It seems to have been after seeing this vision that he began to go blind. But the incident has another and much less important place in this rough and limited outline it is the natural occasion for considering, briefly and collectively, all the facts or fables of another aspect of the life of St. Francis, an aspect which is, I will not say more disputable, but certainly more disputed. I mean, all that mass of testimony and tradition that concerns his miraculous powers and supernatural experiences, with which it would have been easy to stud and bejewel every page of the story, only that certain circumstances necessary to the conditions of this narrative make it better to gather, somewhat hastily, all such jewels into a heap. I have here adopted this course in order to make allowance for a prejudice. It is indeed to a great extent a prejudice of the past, a prejudice that is plainly disappearing in days of greater enlightenment and especially of a greater range of scientific experiment and knowledge but it is a prejudice that is still tenacious in many of an older generation and still traditional in many of the younger i mean of course what used to be called the belief that miracles do not happen as i think matthew arnold expressed it in expressing the standpoint of so many of our victorian uncles and great-uncles in other words it was the remains of that sceptical simplification by which some of the philosophers of the early eighteenth century had popularized the impression for a very short time, that we had discovered the regulations of the cosmos like the works of a clock, of so very simple a clock that it was possible to distinguish almost at a glance what could or could not have happened in human experience. It should be remembered that these real skeptics of the golden age of skepticism were quite as scornful of the first fancies of science as of the lingering legends of religion. Voltaire, when he was told that a fossil fish had been found on the peaks of the Alps, laughed openly at the tale and said that some fasting monk or hermit had dropped his fish-bones there, possibly in order to effect another monkish fraud. Everybody knows by this time that science has had its revenge on skepticism. The border between the credible and the incredible has not only become once more as vague as in any barbaric twilight, but the credible is obviously increasing and the incredible shrinking. A man in Voltaire's time did not know what miracle he would next have to throw up, 
a man in our time does not know what miracle he will next have to swallow but long before these things had happened in those days of my boyhood when i first saw the figure of st francis far away in the distance and drawing me even at that distance in those victorian days which did seriously separate the virtues from the miracles of the saints even in those days i could not help feeling vaguely puzzled about how this method could be applied to history even then i did not quite understand and even now i do not quite understand on what principle one is to pick and choose in the chronicles of the past which seem to be all of a piece all our knowledge of certain historical periods and notably of the whole medieval period rest on certain connected chronicles written by people who are some of them nameless and all of them dead who cannot in any case be cross-examined and cannot in some cases be corroborated i have never been quite clear about the nature of the right by which historians accepted masses of detail from them as definitely true and suddenly denied their truthfulness when one detail was preternatural i do not complain of their being skeptics i am puzzled about why the skeptics are not more skeptical i can understand their saying that these details would never have been included in a chronicle except by lunatics or liars but in that case the only inference is that the chronicle was written by liars or lunatics they will write for instance monkish fanaticism found it easy to spread the report that miracles were already being worked at the tomb of thomas becket why should they not equally say monkish fanaticism found it easy to spread the slander that four knights from king henry's court had assassinated thomas becket in the cathedral they would write something like this the credulity of the age readily believed that joan of arc had been inspired to point out the dauphin although he was in disguise why should they not write on the same principle the credulity of the age was such as to suppose that an obscure peasant girl could get an audience at the court of the dauphin and so in the present case when they tell us that there is a wild story that saint francis flung himself into the fire and emerged scatheless upon what precise principle are they forbidden to tell us of a wild story that saint francis flung himself into the camp of the ferocious moslems and returned safe i only ask for information for i do not see the rationale of the thing myself i will undertake to say that there was not a word written of saint francis by any contemporary who was himself incapable of believing and telling a miraculous story perhaps it is all monkish fables and there never was any saint francis or any saint thomas becket or any joan of arc this is undoubtedly a reductio ad absurdum but it is a reductio ad absurdum of the view which thought all miracles absurd and in abstract logic this method of selection would lead to the wildest absurdities an intrinsically incredible story could only mean that the authority was unworthy of credit it would not mean that other parts of the story must be received with complete credulity if somebody had said he had met a man in yellow trousers who proceeded to jump down his own throat we should not exactly take our bible oath or be burned at the stake for the statement that he wore yellow trousers if someone claimed to have gone up in a blue balloon and found that the moon was made of green cheese we should not exactly take an affidavit that the balloon was blue any more than that the moon was green 
and the really logical conclusion from throwing doubts on all tales like the miracles of st francis was to throw doubts on the existence of men like st francis and there really was a modern moment a sort of high-water mark of insane skepticism when this sort of thing was really said and done people used to go about saying that there was no such person as st patrick which is every bit as much of a human and historical howler as saying there was no such person as st francis there was a time for instance when the madness of mythological explanation had dissolved a large part of solid history under the universal and luxuriant warmth and radiance of the sun myth i believe that that particular sun has already set but there have been any number of moons and meteors to take its place st francis of course would make a magnificent sun myth how could anybody miss the chance of being a sun myth when he is actually best known for a song called the canticle of the sun it is needless to point out that the fire in syria was the dawn in the east and the bleeding wounds in tuscany the sunset in the west i could expound this theory at considerable length only as so often happens to such fine theorists another and more promising theory occurs to me i cannot think how everybody including myself can have overlooked the fact that the whole tale of st francis is of totemistic origin it is unquestionably a tale that simply swarms with totems the franciscan woods are as full of them as any red indian fable francis is made to call himself an ass because in the original mythos francis was merely the name given to the real four-footed donkey afterwards vaguely evolved into a half-human god or hero and that no doubt is why i used to feel that the brother wolf and sister bird of st francis were somehow like the brer fox and sis cow of uncle remus some say there is an innocent stage in infancy in which we do really believe that a cow talked or a fox made a tar baby anyhow there is an innocent period of intellectual growth in which we do sometimes really believe that st patrick was a sun myth or st francis a totem but for the most of us both these phases of paradise are past as i shall suggest in a moment there is one sense in which we can for practical purposes distinguish between probable and improbable things in such a story it is not so much a question of cosmic criticism about the nature of the event as of literary criticism about the nature of the story some stories are told much more seriously than others but apart from this i shall not attempt here any definite differentiation between them i shall not do so for a practical reason affecting the utility of the proceeding i mean the fact that in a practical sense the whole of this matter is again in the melting pot from which many things may emerge molded into what rationalism would have called monsters the fixed points of faith and philosophy do indeed remain always the same whether a man believes that fire in one case could fail to burn depends on why he thinks it generally does burn if it burns nine sticks out of ten because it is its nature or doomed to do so then it will burn the tenth stick as well if it burns nine sticks because it is the will of god that it should then it might be the will of god that the tenth should be unburned nobody can get behind that fundamental difference about the reason of things 
it is as rational for a theist to believe in miracles as for an atheist to disbelieve in them in other words there is only one intelligent reason why a man does not believe in miracles and that is because he does not believe in materialism but these fixed points of faith and philosophy are things for a theoretical work and have no particular place here and in the matter of history and biography which have their place here nothing is fixed at all the world is in a welter of the possible and impossible and nobody knows what will be the next scientific hypothesis to support some ancient superstition three quarters of the miracles attributed to saint francis would already be explained by psychologists not indeed as a catholic explains them but as a materialist must necessarily refuse to explain them there is one whole department of the miracles of saint francis the miracles of healing what is the good of a superior skeptic throwing them away as unthinkable at the moment when faith healing is already a big booming yankee business like barnum's show there is another whole department analogous to the tales of christ perceiving men's thoughts what is the use of censoring them and blacking them out because they are marked miracles when thought-reading is already a parlor game like musical chairs there is another whole department to be studied separately if such scientific study were possible of the well-attested wonders worked from his relics and fragmentary possessions what is the use of dismissing all that as inconceivable when even these common psychical parlor tricks turn perpetually upon touching some familiar object or holding in the hand some personal possession i do not believe of course that these tricks are of the same type as the good works of the saint save perhaps in the sense of diabolus simius dei but it is not a question of what i believe and why but of what the skeptic disbelieves and why and the moral for the practical biographer and historian is that he must wait till things settle down a little more before he claims to disbelieve anything this being so he can choose between two courses and not without some hesitation i have here chosen between them the best and boldest course would be to tell the whole story in a straightforward way miracles and all as the original historians told it and to this sane and simple course the new historians will probably have to return but it must be remembered that this book is avowedly only an introduction to saint francis or the study of saint francis those who need an introduction are in their nature strangers with them the object is to get them to listen to saint francis at all and in doing so it is perfectly legitimate so to arrange the order of the facts that the familiar come before the unfamiliar and those they can at once understand before those they have a difficulty in understanding i should only be too thankful if this thin and scratchy sketch contains a line or two that attracts men to study saint francis for themselves and if they do study him for themselves they will soon find that the supernatural part of the story seems quite as natural as the rest but it was necessary that my outline should be a merely human one since i was only presenting his claim on all humanity including skeptical humanity i therefore adopted the alternative course of showing first that nobody but a born fool could fail to realize that francis of assisi was a very real historical human being 
and then summarizing briefly in this chapter the superhuman powers that were certainly a part of that history and humanity it only remains to say a few words about some distinctions that may reasonably be observed in the matter by any man of any views that he may not confuse the point and climax of the saint's life with the fancies and rumors that were really only the fringes of his reputation there is so immense a mass of legends and anecdotes about st francis of assisi and there are so many admirable compilations that cover nearly all of them that i have been compelled within these narrow limits to pursue a somewhat narrow policy that of following one line of explanation and only mentioning one anecdote here or there because it illustrates that explanation if this is true about all the legends and stories it is especially true about the miraculous legends and the supernatural stories if we were to take some stories as they stand we should receive a rather bewildered impression that the biography contains more supernatural events than natural ones now it is clean against catholic tradition coincident in so many points with common sense to suppose that this is really the proportion of these things in practical human life moreover even considered as supernatural or preternatural stories they obviously fall into certain different classes not so much by our experience of miracles as by our experience of stories some of them have the character of fairy stories in their form even more than their incident they are obviously tales told by the fire to peasants or the children of peasants under conditions in which nobody thinks he is propounding a religious doctrine to be received or rejected but only rounding off a story in the most symmetrical way according to that sort of decorative scheme or pattern that runs through all fairy stories others are obviously in their form most emphatically evidence that is they are testimony that is truth or lies and it will be very hard for any judge of human nature to think they are lies it is admitted that the story of the stigmata is not a legend but can only be a lie i mean that it is certainly not a late legendary accretion added afterwards to the fame of st francis but it is something that started almost immediately with his earliest biographers it is practically necessary to suggest that it was a conspiracy indeed there has been some disposition to put the fraud upon the unfortunate elias whom so many parties have been disposed to treat as a useful universal villain it has been said indeed that these early biographers st bonaventura and solano and the three companions though they declare that st francis received the mystical wounds do not say that they themselves saw these wounds i do not think this argument conclusive because it only arises out of the very nature of the narrative the three companions are not in any case making an affidavit and therefore none of the admitted parts of their story are in the form of an affidavit they are writing a chronicle of a comparatively impersonal and very objective description they do not say i saw st francis's wounds they say st francis received wounds but neither do they say i saw st francis go into portunucula they say st francis went into the portunucula but i cannot understand why they should be trusted as eyewitnesses about the one fact and not trusted as eyewitnesses about the other it is all of a piece 
it would be a most abrupt and abnormal interruption in their way of telling the story if they suddenly began to curse and to swear and give their names and addresses and take their oath that they themselves saw and verified the physical facts in question it seems to me therefore that this particular discussion goes back to the general question i have already mentioned the question of why these chronicles should be credited at all if they are credited with abounding in the incredible but that again will probably be found to revert in the last resort to the mere fact that some men cannot believe in miracles because they are materialists that is logical enough but they are bound to deny the preternatural as much in the testimony of a modern scientific professor as that of a medieval monkish chronicler and there are plenty of professors for them to contradict by this time but whatever may be thought of such supernaturalism in the comparatively material and popular sense of supernatural acts we shall miss the whole point of st francis especially of st francis after alverno if we do not realize that he was living a supernatural life and there is more and more of such supernaturalism in his life as he approaches towards his death this element of the supernatural did not separate him from the natural but it was the whole point of his position that it unified him more perfectly to the natural it did not make him dismal or dehumanized for it was the whole meaning of his message that such mysticism makes a man cheerful and humane but it was the whole point of his position and it was the whole meaning of his message that the power that did it was a supernatural power if this simple distinction were not apparent from the whole of his life it would be difficult for anyone to miss it in reading the account of his death in a sense he may be said to have wondered as a dying man just as he had wondered as a living one as it became more and more apparent that his health was failing he seems to have been carried from place to place like a pageant of sickness or almost like a pageant of mortality he went to Rieti to nursia or perhaps to naples certainly to cortona by the lake of perugia but there is something profoundly pathetic and full of great problems in the fact that at last as it would seem his flame of life leapt up and his heart rejoiced when they saw afar off on the assassin hill the solemn pillars of the portunucula he who had become a vagabond for the sake of a vision he who had denied himself all sense of place and possession, he whose whole gospel and glory it was to be homeless, received like a Parthian shot from nature the sting of the sense of home. He also had his maladie de clocheur, his sickness of the spire, though his spire was higher than ours. Never, he cried with the sudden energy of strong spirits in death, never give up this place if you would go anywhere or make any pilgrimage return always to your home for this is the holy house of god and the procession passed under the arches of his home and he lay down on his bed and his brethren gathered round him for the last long vigil it seems to me no moment for entering into the subsequent disputes about which successors he blessed or in what form and with what significance in that one mighty moment he blessed us all after he had taken farewell of some of his nearest and especially some of his oldest friends 
he was lifted at his own request off his own rude bed and laid on the bare ground as some say clad only in a hair shirt as he had first gone forth into the wintry woods from the presence of his father it was the final assertion of his great fixed idea of praise and thanks springing to their most towering height out of nakedness and nothing as he lay there we may be certain that his seared and blinded eyes saw nothing but their object and their origin we may be sure that the soul in its last inconceivable isolation was face to face with nothing less than god incarnate and christ crucified but for the men standing around him there must have been other thoughts mingled with these and many memories must have gathered like ghosts in the twilight as that day wore on and that great darkness descended in which we all lost a friend for what lay dying there was not dominic of the dogs of god a leader in logical and controversial wars that could be reduced to a plan and handed on like a plan a master of a machine of democratic discipline by which others could organize themselves what was passing from the world was a person a poet an outlook on life like a light that was never after on sea or land a light a thing not to be replaced or repeated while the earth endures it has been said that there was only one christian who died on the cross it is truer to say in this sense that there was only one franciscan whose name was francis huge and happy as was the popular work he left behind him there was something that he could not leave behind any more than a landscape painter can leave his eyes in his will it was an artist in life who was here called to be an artist in death and he had a better right than nero his antitype to say qualis artifex pereo for nero's life was full of posing for the occasion like that of an actor while the umbrians had a natural and continuous grace like that of an athlete but saint francis had better things to say and better things to think about and his thoughts were caught upwards where we cannot follow them in divine and dizzy heights to which death alone can lift us up round about him stood the brethren in their brown habits those that had loved him even if they afterwards disputed with each other there was bernard his first friend and angelo who had served as his secretary and elias his successor whom tradition tried to turn into a sort of judas but who seemed to have been little worse than an official in the wrong place his tragedy was that he had a franciscan habit without a franciscan heart or at any rate with a very un-franciscan head but though he made a bad franciscan he might have made a decent dominican anyhow there was no reason to doubt that he loved francis for ruffians and savages did that anyhow he stood among the rest as the hours passed and the shadows lengthened in the house of the portunicula and nobody need think so ill of him as to suppose that his thoughts were there in the tumultuous future in the ambitions and controversies of his later years a man might fancy that the birds must have known when it happened and made some motion in the evening sky as they had once according to the tale scattered to the four winds of heaven in the patterns of a cross at his sign of dispersal they might now have written in such dotted lines a more awful augury across the sky 
Hidden in the woods, perhaps, were little cowering creatures never again to be so much noticed and understood. And it has been said that animals are sometimes conscious of things to which man, their spiritual superior, is for the moment blind. We do not know whether any shiver passed through all the thieves and the outcasts and the outlaws to tell them what had happened to him who never knew the nature of scorn. But at least in the passages and porches of the Portununcula there was a sudden stillness where all the brown figures stood like bronze statues for the stopping of the great heart that had not broken till it held the world. End of chapter 9